G'day and welcome to a Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much. Just a reminder, the clarity of the recording isn't quite as good as when we do this in the studio, so our apologies there, but we are continuing to... Uh, do the programming and we want as many new episodes as we can. So uh, we've been very, very lucky, actually. All our students are quite happy to put some new software onto their laptops or, com or computers. And so I can just email them, invite them to do the recording. So things are going quite well. But today, I would like to introduce you to Olivia Manning, who is doing a PhD in Rehabilitation Science under the supervision of Dr. Vincent DePaul. So welcome to Grad Chat, Olivia. Thank you so much, Colette. Thanks for having me. And I, I'm, I'm very thankful because Olivia reached out to me saying, can I come on? And I love that rather than me going searching. So <laughs> it's really nice that you, you decided, yes, I'm going to come on the show. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> now, before we get into your research, let's find out a bit more about you. Now, often students in rehabilitation science come from an occupational therapy or physical therapy background. But my understanding is yours is phys physical therapy, correct? Yes, that's right. So what made you, after doing being in, in the practical setting, what made you want to come back to school? Yeah, so I think I did actually always know that I did want to go back to school, even when I was in the physiotherapy program. I did take a year after finishing, finishing the uh, physiotherapy program to just practice clinically because I wanted to make sure that I had a chance to sort of solidify my clinical skills before going into like a non-clinical program. And so what really kind of started my interest in research was my experiences in my undergrad, um, that I had some experience with rehabilitation research that was going on at Memorial University, which is in my hometown of St. John's, Newfoundland. Uh, and I primarily worked under uh, um, Dr. Michelle Plowman, um, and in her, her own background is in physiotherapy, but she also has a PhD, and she has this uh, recovery and performance laboratory in Newfoundland. Right. And she was very much someone that I looked up to. She was a mentor to me. I still look up to her as well. And uh, I used to always joke with friends that I really just wanted to have her job because she, <laughs> you know, she really had that balance of working like hands-on research that was very clinically applicable. And so I really loved the idea of being positioned like she was in a, in a rehabilitation hospital doing that hands-on research um, that could be sort of directly put into practice. Right. And so in the last year, I, I have been working at a rehab hospital here in Kingston. So I'm starting to feel a little bit more and more now as I'm getting to sort of the nearer end of my PhD program that I'm getting closer to that sort of dream job that I was looking up to where I'm working clinically, but also doing some clinically applicable research and, um, and teaching in the physiotherapy program as well, which I love. That's brilliant because it's interesting because the field of physiotherapy you can go into so many different areas. I mean, I'm, I'm a sports person, so physiotherapy was one of those pros. I'm thinking, yeah, I could get into sports physiotherapy and things after after that. And of course, I didn't go that route in the end. And of course, you you clearly like being in the hospital setting, but there's all sorts of areas where we need physical therapists. But clearly, the hospital setting is more to your liking. 
Yeah, I've had experience in, in lots of different areas. So what initially drew me to physio was the sports side of it because I was an athlete growing up, played soccer and basketball and had seen a physiotherapist along the way. So that's right. sort of where my interest started. But actually when I got to have the experience in hospital, either volunteering as an undergrad or now as a clinician, it definitely is where I'm best suited and where I'm most passionate working. So we're going to, have to talk more later because they were them my two sports as well, soccer and basketball. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we digress, and I have to get back myself back on track because <laughs> it's not about me. But <laughs> so, Olivia, let's let's go on and talk about the research that you did come back to do. So, your research topic is development, implementation, and evaluation of a community-based water exercise transition program for individuals with chronic stroke. So can you just give me a bit of an overview of what all that means first off before we get into the nitty gritty? Sure. Yeah. So I'm really, I really love working in stroke and I'm lucky here at Providence Care. I get to work with stroke survivors. Um, It's just an area of practice that I find really exciting and have a passion for that. And what I became interested in as a student in the physiotherapy program, but also as a clinician was what happens to stroke survivors once they leave formal rehab. So as a clinician, you know, you try and do as much as you can and work with them on their goals so that they can go back into the community, back to the things that they love to do. And then sort of there's this disconnect where they get discharged from formal rehabilitation and we're not really sure um, if they're able to continue with therapeutic exercise or, you know, even just continue with their ongoing therapy goals. And and stroke is a big issue in Canada. So it's actually the leading cause of adult disability in Canada. Is that right? And, and 40% of stroke survivors are actually left with a significant disability. So um, what we're continuing to learn as well in, in research studies um, is that people do have the potential to improve um, many months or even years after a stroke, which is kind of contrary to what we typically cover in rehab at the moment, which is usually about the three to six month period. And so when they're discharged as a physio, I would often tell people like, try and be as you know active as you can, continue with some of these therapeutic exercises. But we know for a variety of reasons, the majority of stroke survivors don't carry this out. And mm-hmm. it's it's certainly not all on them. It's it's also to do with how our communities are, are, are built, our systems are built to support them. So my research is really to plan sort of a step-down exercise program, meaning that we're trying to support people in that transition, going out into the community and trying to be active. And so... The idea for my research is uh, that it would be in a pool-based exercise program because um, there are some definite benefits to working in water with people who are not already, you know, walking and moving well. And um, so the plan is to actually carry it out in a community pool here in Kingston at Artillery Park. And, and really community pools, they're accessible in, a, in most communities, even smaller than Kingston. And it's pretty low entry cost to get in. And the properties of the water actually provide a really promising environment for therapeutic mm-hmm. exercise because it's a sort of a safe environment. There's typically a lifeguard on, on deck, but the water supports them to be able to stand and walk without needing, you know, lots of hands-on support, um, right. but it also provides that extra challenge too when we think about the different properties of water that will resist movement. And so so my goal really is to just demonstrate that it's something that could be feasibly delivered in a community to help manage and support stroke survivors once they're uh, out of formal rehab. So can I just check though, when you're talking about community pools, is this a program then that still has someone 
giving the exercise that they follow or is it, is it a program that they do individually themselves? Yeah, so the idea, I really do think that physiotherapists have a role to play in, in this type of a program. So not to say that it needs to be strictly, you know, one-on-one therapy, but the idea is that there is a physiotherapist who is part of programming like this in the community um, so that they can give appropriate exercises to people, but that volunteers or even recreational professionals who, you know, fitness professionals in the community could actually carry out the programming once it's sort of developed for that person. And I think, yeah, it's a more feasible way than having a bunch of therapists taking their time and going into the pool. It doesn't necessarily need to be like that, but that, uh, the physiotherapy perspective, I think, is still important to, to be a part of that. I know you said you've always been interested in in stroke, um, mm-hmm. chronic stroke. What made you get, get interested in that? Because a lot of times people get into some sort of health issue because they've had a relative that's been, who suffered from a particular disease or something like that, or have had an accident or things like that. So what made you get into the stroke side of things? Yeah, uh, I did actually, my grandfather did have a stroke. At that time, the sort of screening process of, you know, the face, arm, speech time, um, you know, all that messaging that we have now about recognizing stroke was not really in place. And and he actually ended up passing due to complications and, and they had taken some time to recognize that. But then, but then as an undergrad and just volunteering in a rehab hospital, and I was working in a, um, a stroke program called GRASP, which was um, upper extremity exercise, trying to regain the use of their arm and hand. And it was just really interesting to this particular incident that happens in their life almost overnight completely changes their life. Whereas, you know, other chronic conditions, they sort of will build over time. This one is sort of a a really sudden event that can drastically alter your life. And for me, that was something that I it was really hard for them to go through, but it was also really rewarding for me to work with them and and see them try and regain some of that control back of their life and and joy and uh, and that kind of stuff. So I I just, through experience, also got very passionate about stroke survivors. Well, I'm I'm glad, and they're probably very glad too, that you're so passionate about it. (laughs) So how are you actually developing this exercise program? Because, I mean, you've already explained the fact that being in water can make things a little bit easier when it comes to rehabilitation, because we we hear that a lot, whether whether it's human or even in animals, going through through the water can can help a lot of things. But um, how are you developing this? Because you're going to need some people to test it out on as well, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. So definitely a main goal of mine when I started the project or even the PhD program was to try and develop a realistic intervention. Right, um, yes. Just because I work clinically, I, I wanted it to be something that could work in the real world and, and not just in the confines of a, a research study. So I spent a lot of time thinking about what that might mean. And one of my committee members actually directed me to this literature based on complex health interventions. So trying to, instead of control all the variables and control everything, actually try and embrace some of the complexity that exists in the real world and uh-huh. in the real populations that you're working with. Um, and so it really aims to, you know, some systematically develop an intervention, um, but answer the question, is this effective in everyday practice? So for me, it gets me talking about what it means to have an evidence-based intervention, which is a word that's thrown around a lot in rehabilitation <laughs> science. Um, and, I, and I think clinicians often have this sort of a negative 
attitude towards that word evidence-based because as a clinician, if you read a research trial uh, of an intervention and exercise program, for example, and then you're reading what the participants look like and what they did, and you're kind of thinking to yourself, like, this actually isn't something I could do, or this population doesn't really represent what the people actually look like. Right. Um, and so my idea of evidence base is to, yes, look at the research and what has been done, but then also to get the perspectives from the people with the experience of the experts in the field. And that can be the healthcare providers, but also stroke survivors, um, their family members, community partners, like really get the full evidence base. And, and evidence base can include that really rich experience that these people do have. And so what I've done so far is is done a, a scoping review of the literature just to see what's been done in water for stroke survivors. And now what I'm doing is recruiting for, for um, some focus group interviews and some interviews to actually get the perspective from these you know, experts. And I think, you know, as researchers, we and myself included, when I first started, we kind of dream up these interventions that we think are going to do wonders and sort of, you know, address the issues of, of things that we're seeing, but we don't stop to see if that intervention is really going to be something that they value or if it truly meets their needs. So, so I essentially have sort of an early design of the intervention right now based on what the literature says to do <laughs> or what t- people typically do. And then I'm taking that and bringing it to those experts and seeing like, is this something you actually think could happen? Is there something that we're missing in terms of a barrier that we're not aware of that would you know, limit us actually being able to implement this and, and really trying to look at the more complex individuals that maybe aren't usually included in research trials to build it for them as well. Have you found when you're looking at your, doing your literature review and things, have you found, I don't know how far you've looked, but have you found differences from one country to another? And is, and is there certain ones, certain ideas that you've taken from, a, from a, say, a different country and, and for what reason? Yeah, so I will say the literature on water-based interventions is pretty pocketed. Like there seems to be research groups from varying different countries that are working on this. And that seems to be the right. one of their main areas of research. And overall, there doesn't seem to be necessarily country-based differences, but certainly different approaches to what they do in the water. So there are some interventions that are more passive called bad regas, and they sort of are holding a stroke survivor in the water and sort of moving them and and trying to have them either loosen their body or resist that movement that's being done. But then there's more active interventions as well, where they're doing lots of balance, um, reactive balance training, where they're upstanding, moving against the resistance of the water. So there's variety. And I think what What's there is that having a varied intervention, so maybe not doing just one of those approaches, but trying to, you know, address some of the common impairments through uh, different approaches. Yeah. Well, I think that's important, too, because not every stroke victim is going to have the same issues, is it? There's going to be a sliding scale of how well they can move. Exactly. And like even two strokes in the same exact area can look very different. So it, it really does have to be individualized. And I think in, if we're thinking about implementing this in community, that's where the physiotherapist comes in is trying to make sure that's individualized for that person. Um, but then the actual act of carrying it out doesn't necessarily have to be so physiotherapy heavy. Yeah. Are you bringing in as part of your model to like and I guess this comes into my my next question. I mean, you're talking about using the main swimming pool here in Kingston for your trials, but yeah. we're currently under under a pandemic. 
So I can understand in normal situations using community swimming pools and things, but under, under the conditions we are now, is this something they could be using, for instance, in a lot of the apartment blocks have their own swimming pool? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. or people might have families with a pool in their backyard. Right. Is it possible to be able to do this without someone keeping tabs on them as well? I mean, is it okay for a family member to help them as opposed to someone, either a physiotherapist or someone who's been trained by a physio to, to give the program? Yeah, so so part of the step down of the intervention that I'm creating is that initially, yes, there's some physiotherapy involved just to make sure the exercises are appropriate. And, and yeah. some stroke survivors do get some experience with hydrotherapy. Um, even here right. at Providence Care, we do have a pool, but not all of them do. And so their experience is kind of going to be varied. But the goal is at the end of the program that they would be able to actually go to a community pool or go to a pool if it's in their backyard. Um, yes. But go to a pool and carry out some of the exercises either independently or with their family members. So there there will be a part of this that will be sort of weaning them off of more formal supports um, and sort of giving them the skills to actually carry this out after the program is finished. The goal is that they can then continue to be active in the community, which I think is something that, that we've identified as missing. And is is there also some sort of follow up with that you've implementing as part of this program? Because it's all very good. Like you've you can get very intense physio, for instance, when they're in the hospital, and when now you're looking at doing a program outside within the swimming pool setting with people who are trained or or being taught how to to monitor. But there must be. Is there part of that to a follow-up at the end? Because I would imagine as they're getting better, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, the the training itself would change like it would in anything, any sort of rehabilitation. You know, from the beginning, you need to do this. But as we get up, um, get a little bit more um, mobility, then you go to this and then you go to this and then you go to this. Will there be a sort of follow-up as part of your programming? Yeah, so what I'm planning to do is a smaller pilot of the intervention. So it's part of this complex health interventions, the way that you build them. So you you create it. So what I'm doing is getting that feedback from the experts. And then we're going to run a pilot, hopefully, of the, yes. of the pool program. And then from there, um, the plan is actually to, again, elicit the feedback from the participants to see what needs to change. Um, so we're planning to do that a few months down after the program is finished. And right. part of it is to see have they been able to implement this in their everyday life? And and at that point, I think we'll be able to make some kind of estimate of if there needs to be some sort of follow-up, whether it's to make sure that they're still able to do what they have been doing, or if there's something where it's like, well, now all these exercises are too easy. So I got bored and that's why I didn't continue with it. Right. So, yes. so whether that's something that needs to be there. And there are interventions that are out there for even balance and uh, walking even interventions on land where they do uh, like a booster session. So they have people come back, you know, six months down the road or whatever it is and do a, one session with the physio on that training. And it seems to show some even prolonged benefits, just even have a, having that booster, kind of like a right. booster shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So motivation's a big thing, isn't it? Because if you're, if you're not motivated, and that's why most people stop going to the gym, because they get bored, like you said. Yeah. yeah. I guess and this so- way, the motivation is them getting better. But I mean... We can all be pretty lazy at times. 
Right. And sometimes these things do take time. So I, I understand why people do start to lose um, a little bit of motivation. Mm-hmm. The other thing as well is, is for people who have had stroke, a lot of the times they're reporting when they go out in the community, they don't really feel very safe exercising because they're, right. they're just not sure about the expertise that's in that community center, if they really have the skills to help them. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, why I think the physiotherapy role I think it is something that should develop uh, over yes. time as we start to see more and more people going out into the community after after being in formal rehab. So, well, uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, the The other area I thought, and not just under pandemic situations that we're in, but not all communities are as well off as others. And so, even if they've got the swimming pool, do they have enough physios around or people to support them? in doing something like this, which is the, which is the usual issue, right? Some of the, um, I hate to say it, some of the rural areas don't get as much support as say urban areas. So how would yeah. you go about looking after that part? Yeah, so I definitely agree. Not all communities are set up as nicely as Kingston is. And mm-hmm. I, I think Artillery Park has even heightened reality in a, in a slight way because they do have a really accessible center. It's a beautiful pool with the, they have water accessible wheelchairs and a right. mechanical lift and the change room. Like it's very well set up for this. Mm-hmm. So again, I think, you know, we'll do this small study to see anything that we can tweak before we take it into a larger study. But the, the goal would yes. then be, yeah, to take it into places that look like real life. So a community mm-hmm. pool in a smaller place that maybe isn't as accessible, like trying to work through those details. And then even taking it beyond a pool setting, because not everybody is inclined to working in the water. And so really a goal of my research is to systematically develop these interventions and sure they're going to work in everyday practice so that concept i think can be applied beyond just this water-based intervention and it's something i i'm really passionate about and will continue to work on whether the, you know this water program works the way right. i hope it will so yeah well i think it's interesting too because i mean some people have a very good family support system around them and therefore you know like you said whether it's in water or another sort of program they can be taught to a point to help do that with their their loved ones so to speak but I always get worried about those people who don't have the same sort of access as um, some of us do to certain facilities or support systems and they're the ones that probably need it more the most because they don't have as much opportunity yeah, those are the people I think that have the most to lose Correct. for not having access for sure. And, and I've seen firsthand clinically those individuals who go home after a stroke and either they have the financial means or even the family supports to be able to do lots of ongoing exercise. They have someone who can go through things with them and, you know, and then you see them continue to improve months and months and months after their stroke. And then I've also seen the the opposite where people just sort of slowly uh, decline and end up decline. having other complications. So, you know, another stroke, if it's a you know cardiovascular issue and they're not being active or even just having falls at home and those sorts of things. So, yeah. And I've even thought even during this time, as things are reopening, and we're, you know, trying to reopen as safely as we can, of course. But, yeah. um, but I do think we should be thinking about those people who are, who are either marginalized in some way or just they are typically more having difficulty. Yeah, they're having more difficulty accessing things before all of this happens. So we really should be paying attention to those groups and making sure, being effortful about creating opportunities, early opportunities for them to be more engaged mm-hmm. in the community. Yeah. 
I love the fact you're using the swimming pool, a body of water, because I think water is fantastic because you can be non-weight bearing and that can certainly help all sorts of things. So I think it's great that you're doing this. And But I mean, you are, you are still a clinician as well as a researcher right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how are you balancing that? I mean, COVID-19 and, and the pandemic thing has caused enough issues for it, but you're also continuing with your clinical work, but you're also researching too. So how are you managing to balance all of that? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and when I <laughs> started the PhD program, I was not sure if I knew how to do that. And I actually took the first year of the PhD program to just focus on that program, give it the attention that it needed and, and sort of settle into it. Right. But even even a few months after that, I was already finding I was missing clinical practice. And I also started to feel, even though it's a short amount of time, but I started to feel out of touch with that community. And and I ultimately felt like that was going to have a negative impact on my research. So I did start up in my second year uh, working in private practice, but then quickly transitioned to Providence Care. Um, And it's actually one of the best decisions I've made. Um, (laughs) (laughs) One of them is is even just the structure of it, because the the PhD program can sometimes feel very unstructured and you do have to work to structure yourself. And I work here just three hours a day. So I come here first thing in the morning, I work the three hours, and then it just gives me a really good reason. I love my job to get up and go out, do that work. And then it, it's one of those things where even though it's adding more hours, maybe to my day, it really energizes me. It recharges me in a way. So, um, so it drives me even to go home and work hard on my thesis. Um, and even seeing some of the issues in my clinical practice helps drive my research questions and vice versa. Like they do feed really well into each other. So, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I think it's interesting because I always say to to um, new PhD students and things, and you've got to treat it like your PhD, like a job. Otherwise, it's going to be a long haul and, and uh, get really tiring and things, right? Because if you have some, like you said, if you can create the structure yourself, yeah, it doesn't mean to say you have to be working 24-7. You say, I'm writing three hours this morning, and then this afternoon I'm doing something totally different. So yours is doing your work, your research in the morning, going off and doing your clinical practice later, which, like you said, gives you that great break, but also mm-hmm. keeps you in, in touch with why you went into into the research in the first place. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. so I think that's, you, you know, you've got yourself a really good a good balance there. And I always say, too, sometimes it's the busiest people that are the most time efficient. <laughs> so, I know. Well, and I'm such a procrastinator naturally anyway. Oh, so so being, being on a time pinch is always when I do my best work and, and I think, yeah, just valuing like, okay, now I've taken this three hours to, to work clinically. Now I have like this window of time that I want to dedicate and and it just, yeah, it works well for me. And of course there are some days that are better than other. I haven't mastered this by any means, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, it really does work even for my mental health to get out of the house and, Mm -hmm. you know, talk to other people, especially right now. So to have that interaction with patients to see what they you know, what they're going through right now and then go home and try and work on something. Hopefully that will improve what their care looks like. And I'm sure it will. But you're not just doing that either. You're so, I'm looking here at some of your extracurriculars. You (laughs) teach a body shop yoga class and you perform live music for yoga classes in Kingston. How did you get into all of that? Other than the (laughs) fact you clearly like looking after your, you know, your, your physical, your physical body and things, keeping exercise and 
body and yeah. mind, all that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So I guess I got into that just through doing yoga myself. And I've been doing that for a number of years. And I, I love that practice. And just meeting people through yoga and, and a lot of the people are, and even anyone I've interacted with and when I worked in private practice, people now are very interested in how their body works and trying to prevent an injury and how can I, you know, sit the best way or move the best way and I don't want to hurt my knee. And so I would often get people coming up to me after yoga classes because I knew I was a physiotherapist and asking me questions (laughs) about different things, which I love. Um, But I felt like there must be a better way that I can do this. So um, so with this studio, uh, there's a studio here in Kingston called Studio 330. And they came to me and said, you know, we we also have people who are asking about you and, you know, where you work and stuff. And I work at a hospital, so I can't see people there unless they're in hospital, (laughs) which you don't want. So, So yeah, it's this once a month, it's just an hour and we pick a different body part or a different joint and spend a little bit of time talking about the anatomy and then I sort of go through some common injuries and common areas that are either weak or tight or whatever it is and we sort of move through yoga like poses but just trying to promote um people knowing a little bit more about their body and trying to stay healthy um Mm -hmm. yeah it's really fun actually people like the energy is really great and and I usually learn a lot even just through you know reviewing all of that and I don't work in private practice right now so keeping all my skills in that way very fresh too that's good. That's good. And mm-hmm. I think that's really, really important because it's like you said, it's very easy to get out of touch with your for profession sure. if you if you don't keep a part of it. So uh, good on you for doing all of that. Yeah. <laughs> and then I guess the live music stuff is just kind of random. A friend of mine um, had heard that I played played saying a little bit, so I started playing at some yoga classes. Um, I'll just Brilliant. basically sit in the back of the room while everyone else does yoga. It's great. No one's looking at me. And <laughs> I can explain saying and it's nice. So, yeah. And they should be so chilled. It doesn't matter how good or bad you are, really. Not saying exactly. that you are bad, but... <laughs> and I can put them right to sleep and <laughs> that would be a good performance. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's awesome. Olivia, we're going to have to call it quits there, but I really do thank you for coming on the show in these unusual times. And explaining the, the the work that you're doing because I think it's fascinating and as you said stroke is a is a big issue here in Canada and so mm-hmm. the more that we can do to help our stroke victims get themselves back on their feet so to speak and be able to be a part of the community and feel more comfortable in the community again I think that's awesome so best of luck with all of that and I'm sure the program's going to go really really well yeah thank you so much thanks for having me it was great to share with some <laughs> Hopefully people can benefit from it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. So, I mean, and if you need if you need some volunteers or if you've got a list of volunteers already to do your trial. Yeah, we're just sort of starting to recruit just for that expert feedback right now. But even in the meantime, anyone who is interested can certainly reach out to me and, and we'll get in contact once we're ready. We're not really sure when that is right now due to COVID. Okay, but, well, if um, you want to send yeah. me the contact details, I can stick them up next to um, the listing of, of this uh grad chat that would be great thank you and we can do that awesome well thank you again that's it everyone a, another week of grad chat so it comes to an end don't forget you can download this show tomorrow from either itunes google podcast or stitcher just type in a grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray
Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.